How does one describe the indescribable? The most amazing scenery that I've ever seen was at the Yosemite National Park in California. And I have absolutely no way to describe it to you. It was just amazing. I mean, how do I describe the panorama of, of vast sandstone cliffs interspersed by waterfalls? How do I describe a picturesque valley with babbling brooks that, that are actually almost raging torrents by Australian standards and they're just surging past? I just cannot describe to you the beauty. I could try and tell you some, try and explain it to you to try and get you to understand it, but you won't. I just, at the time, I just found myself just standing there looking. You know how you talk about your jaw dropping? Well, it really was. It was just, wow, wow. How do you describe the undescribable? Here's a few pictures, by the way. I can't just leave you that like that. But even these pictures don't, don't really give it justice um, to, to what it actually looks like to stand there and look. How does one describe the indescribable? And, and that's just with creation. How do I describe that? Well, today Luke devotes a mere four verses in the second chapter of Acts to describe the indescribable. And I just long for Luke to describe it in more detail, but he hasn't. Because really that's not the point. The point comes in Peter's explanation of what it was about. And so we get four verses describing the Holy Spirit coming. And then we get nine verses on other people's uh, reactions and, and how they viewed it. And then the rest of the chapter is, descri- is telling us what it was all about. How does one describe the indescribable? Let me set the scene for you. Upwards towards 200,000 people have gathered together in Jerusalem for the great feast of Pentecost. Now, it was also called the Feast of Weeks. There was Israelite Jews and God-fearing converts to Judaism from every nation of the known world and they all converge on the temple precincts of Jerusalem. Now, what was this festival of Pentecost all about? You know, we Christians, we tend to think of Pentecost as, well, that's the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And it is. But the thing is, Pentecost was an existing festival that the people were already at. And it happened long before the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Pentecost was a harvest festival. And it was celebrating the end of harvest. But by Jesus' time, it had also become a time to celebrate the giving of the law. It was the time that the Jews celebrated the time that that Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. And it's very interesting for us to contrast the giving of the law of Moses with what happened at Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Jesus ascended into heaven. Moses, while in his absence... The people rebelled against God and they donated their earrings to the cause and they made for themselves a golden calf for them to bow down to. But in Jesus' absence, the disciples prayed. The law came down to Moses. The Holy Spirit descended onto each of the believers like tongues of fire coming down and separating out and resting on their heads. When Moses brought the law down from the mountain, he was met with a loud sound and the loud sound was was the ruckus that the people were making as they were dancing around, rebelling against God, worshipping this golden calf that they just created. 
But when the Holy Spirit came down, there was another loud sound and it wasn't men who were making this sound, it was God. And it was the loud sound of like a mighty rushing wind as the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. Get this one. When the law came down, 3,000 people who were rebelling against God were killed. When the Holy Spirit came down, 3,000 of the repentant were saved. There's an amazing contrast here and one that we would not, that we would do well not to miss. It's a contrast of the inadequacy of the law to save compared to the absolute salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit achieved what the law was never able to do. The law could tell us what was wrong. Right? There's, there is, it's all there in black and white. This is, this is what you have to do. But the thing is, nobody could achieve it, except for Jesus. Whereas the Holy Spirit is God moving in and giving the disciples the power to live in God's grace. So there was an amazing contrast between the two. How do you describe the indescribable? Well, the disciples of Jesus, 120 of them, were gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, we've all been through storms, haven't we? And they get loud, don't they, in big storms. Um, So we know what a big storm, we know what a big wind sounds like. But, you know, it's something that a friend drew to my attention. It's actually quite difficult for us to divorce the sound from the rest of the experience of being in a storm. I mean, I've been in storms that were so furious, I've just had to say to the kids, get right away from the windows. They could, they could let go. Like the, just the wind is just buffeting against the house. And it was loud. But a friend of mine, he told me about his experience of going through a Category 4 cyclone. And the eye of the cyclone passed right over the top of him. Now, if you know about cyclones, the eye of the cyclone is a a little bit right in the centre of the cyclone. If you ever see a picture from a satellite, you'll see all this big heap of cloud with just a dot of, of nothing. And when the eye of the cyclone passes over you, it's quiet and it's still. And you've got blue skies. And you sort of think, oh, that would have to be good passing through the eye of the cyclone. But the problem is to get to the eye means you've copped the absolute brunt of the cyclone because the where the winds are most furious is right in there in the eye, beside the eye. And it also means that while you're there thinking, oh, this is lovely, guess what? It's all coming again. You're only halfway there yet. Only difference is it's going to be just as loud and just as wild. The wind's just going to be blowing from exactly the opposite direction because the wind goes round that way in a cyclone, anti-clockwise. And he said to me that there was so much noise and everything about it was frightening. Everything. But it wasn't the noise that frightened him. It was the continual buffeting of the house and the gusts of wind hitting the house and, and it, it was just... Every time a big gust of wind hit the house, he was wondering if he was going to stay in Kansas, if you know what I mean. And he said to me, Michael, if you've ever experienced a violent storm, and you know, what we would call a supercell these days, 
um, that's just what it's like to be in a cyclone. The only difference is the supercell will last for, at the maximum 15 minutes, usually only about three or four, whereas the cyclone goes for days. How do you describe the indescribable? Well, the sound was like a strong wind. And that's probably the loudest thing that those disciples had ever heard. I mean, they didn't have jet engines or, or guns or heavy metal punk rock bands. There's probably some loud noises listed over there for old people like me. It, it was loud. But it wasn't scary. The scary part of a storm is the sounds of destruction happening all around you as the barbecue setting that you should have put in the shed before the storm hit is blowing away across the across the flat, you know, and, and things running into the house and, and trees breaking and rain driving against the windows. But when the Holy Spirit came, there was no destruction. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. Ruach. And, and it's, it's the sound of, not nice, easy breathing. It means breathing, breath. But a, a hard breathing. A loud, deep breathing. So it sounded like a wind, but it wasn't a wind. And it looked like tongues of fire. You've all seen fire. You know what fire looks like? You've got a gas stove, you turn it on and it pops up in all those little little tongues. Yep. Well, it looked like tongues of fire that had divided out and gone, come down from heaven and divided out and, and sat upon each person's head. But it wasn't fire. But it looked like it. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues. That means other languages. As the Spirit gave them utterance. It was God giving these people the ability to speak in another language. Now that's what happened. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit, well that wasn't unique to them. Various people, various prophets and kings had been filled with the Holy Spirit before. You read through the Old Testament. And even the Holy Spirit came upon people like likes of Ananias at the, at the temple and, and the prophetess who spoke things about Jesus. Various people had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had been filled with the Holy Spirit. But this was the very first time that the Holy Spirit had been given so freely to ordinary men and ordinary women. It had never happened before. Ordinary people, not just priests, not just kings, not just the prophets. Ordinary people. Now, a big heap of international visitors had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, for Pentecost. Just like when the Olympics were on in Sydney, a single city got filled with international visitors, people from all over the world, all converging on the one place. That's what it was like in Jerusalem at Pentecost time. And when the disciples of Jesus, these uneducated Galileans, began to speak in other languages, languages that these foreigners spoke back at home, well, they were just totally perplexed. What's going on? What does this mean? And some people, I'm guessing that these folk were probably the locals, said, ah, they've had too many alcopops. Now, that's the best translation I can give you. Alright, they've had too many alcopops. Some of our Bibles say that they've had too much wine. But in the Greek, it's not the Greek word for wine that they use. Uh, it's the, it, the Greek word is glucose. That sounds sweet, doesn't it? Right? Our language stems back a lot to the Greek. Glucose. Glucose. 
It actually means the sweet new wine, high sugar content wine, high alcohol content as well. So what they're saying is, hey, they've got a sugar high and they're drunk. They're on the alcohol pops. When's the last time, by the way, that, that uh, you've been so publicly joyful in the Lord that somebody's accused you on, of being on the alcohol pops? We're very respectable, aren't we? Hey? I, I don't think I've ever been accused of that. Maybe we need to be a bit less respectable and be a bit more open about the joy that we have in the Lord to, and with our boldness. You know what alcohol does, it just makes, it removes people's inhibitions and usually they do bad things, things that they normally wouldn't do. Well, the Holy Spirit can remove our inhibitions so that we'll actually do good things. But I can't remember. But of course, they weren't drunk. It was too early in the day for that. It was only nine o'clock in the morning. Mind you, there's some people who I know in this world who nine o'clock in the morning would be perfectly the right time for them to start to be drunk. Um, But anyway, I cannot remember the last time that I've observed the excess of alcohol fueling a multilingual fluency. Have you? Of course not. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they just had to praise God and, and God enabled them to praise him. And he enabled them to do it in a language that they'd never learned. So when they opened their mouths and spoke, they were speaking a language they'd never learned. That'd be like me getting up here today and start praising in Afrikaans. I think I know about one word in Afrikaans, uh, something to do with a sausage. What's it called? Burvos. Is that it? Something like that. <laughs> now, that's what happened. But what does it mean? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to us? And the remainder of the chapter is devoted to answering that very question. And the first thing that it means is the most important thing that it means. Jesus Christ is vindicated. Now, vindicated, that's a big word. That just means that he was proved to be right. Jesus is, is Jesus was and is exactly who he said he was. He said that he is the Son of God and they crucified him because of it. But he was exactly that. Jesus is the Son of God. And the greatest travesty of justice that has ever happened in this world was when the religion that was supposed to come under God and was supposed to be pointing people towards God and bringing people closer to God put God on trial and judged him as guilty. And nailed him to the cross and killed him. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He was vindicated. And now his Holy Spirit is coming in power and filling these disciples. And this proved that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And we're not going to spend any more time on that point now because we're going to cover it in more detail a little bit later in this chapter. So we'll be looking at it either next week or the week after. The second thing it means that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples is we are now living in the last days. Never before in history had the Holy Spirit been poured out on all people. There had been little hints of it. There was a time when, I think it's in Samuel, when David, um, when they were trying to kill David and he went and seeked sanctuary with, with amongst some prophets and And David went there and he started prophesying and everyone that Saul sent there to try and kill David started prophesying as well. 
So there's little hints of it there. But, but it had never come upon all people. But the prophet Joel told us that this day was coming. And he said, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, does God still give his Holy Spirit today as he did to the first century church? Does God still give people the boldness that we need to proclaim the gospel? Does God still enable people to prophesy? That means to speak out the word of God in his name. Does that mean that God still gives people the ability to speak in other languages that they've never learned? And later on we'll be seeing in in Acts how he gave people the ability to heal the sick and raise the dead. Does God still give people that ability through his Holy Spirit today? And a lot of churches will say no. No, he doesn't. They, they, they deny that the Holy Spirit will have the same sort of impact on us. And, and their explanation is, well, the, the early church needed that. But that was just for the early church. It was just a blip on the radar screen. It was just a bump on God's timeline. But we've passed that now. And now the New Testament's written and we can just get everything we need from the New Testament. And, and, and so we don't need this kind of activity from the Spirit. And so it's finished. And so that's what some people say, but you'll never convince me of that. And I'll tell you why not. It's because my Bible tells me that in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. In the last days is when all of these things will happen. Now, what comes after the last? I know what it means to be last. I was never very fast in school. So when, when we had a race, I know exactly where I was going to come. I would cross that finish line last. There's only one time when, when I didn't, and that's when I came tied first with the other fellow who ran, ran, and we were in the last heat. What comes after last? Nothing. The last day is when the Holy Spirit will be poured out. The last days began at Pentecost. Jesus ascended into heaven and at Pentecost a new relationship with God and his people began. The period of time that God calls the last days began when God filled his people with his Holy Spirit. Now we don't know how long the last days are going to be and how long they will continue. In fact, as I read the Bible, I can see that the apostles themselves had every expectation that Jesus was going to return in their own lifetime, but he didn't. And you can see as you read further and into some of the later writings, they're starting to realise this. And they're starting to realise, well, actually Jesus didn't say that he's going to return in our lifetime. And the scriptures tell us that no one knows when Jesus is going to return. Jesus said, I don't even know. Only God the Father knows when I'm going to return. It could be at any time because today is one of the last days. 
And if the last days began, that means the last days are continuing. We are in a time when God fills his disciples with his Holy Spirit. We are in the last days. The third thing it means, and I reckon this is probably the most exciting part, the Holy Spirit of God is available for all people who put their faith in him. There is no class distinction, there is no gender distinction, there is no age distinction, there is no special leader distinction, there is no academic distinction, there is no geographical distinction, there is no racial distinction. You don't have to be born into the right family. You don't have to attend any fancy school or the most prestigious university. You don't have to be a born leader or an athlete. No one is too young. You know, Jesus himself said, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Hey, that's pretty young, isn't it? Infants and nursing babies can praise God. So not one of us here are too young to be filled with the Spirit and, and not one of us here are too old to be filled with the Spirit. You don't have to be any special type of person. What God is looking for is a people who will yield themselves to him and give themselves over to him so that he can make his home in us. These are the people that God will fill with his Holy Spirit. fourth thing we learn is when the disciples of Jesus Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit, these disciples will be supernaturally empowered to do what cannot humanly be done. Ordinary folk spoke in languages that they'd never learned. And they were using these languages with a purpose, to proclaim the amazing works of God. Ordinary people could prophesy. That means God himself spoke through them. Ordinary people were given the boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. By the way, put up up your hand if you feel you do not have the boldness that you need to to tell other people about Jesus. Be honest. Put up your hand if timidity, shyness, apprehension, tentativeness, a lack of confidence is what holds you back from proclaiming the gospel. And you might notice I've got my hand up here. You know what we need? I mean, we know that God wants us to do it. We know that we should be doing it. The Holy Spirit is prompting us, you need to tell this person about Jesus. And, and there's something holding you back. We all know that we need this boldness. We need to be a people who are filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. We need to experience the filling, the, the pouring out, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as that early church did. And because we are a people living in the last days, God can fill us just like that. And we'll find that God will begin to use you and I in ways that we have never imagined. And wow, what an amazing blessing that is. You know, to do something for God that we can do, well, that's our duty, right? And we, we just have to do it. But wow, what an incredible blessing it is when God 
himself does something through us, something that we know that we could never do ourselves and we can just look at, back at it and go, uh, you know, like at the time when it's happening, you'll go, oh, I can't do this, but oh God, help me. And then you look at it back later and go, wow, I know I couldn't have done that. That means that was the activity of God. And what an amazing blessing that is. And I know some of you have experienced that in your lives where that you, you just know that I couldn't have done that. That was God. Well, that's God's Holy Spirit. And what a blessing it is. You know, I heard somebody one day telling the story of a lady in their church and, and she had said, I hope nothing supernatural ever happens in our church. <laughs> what a crazy thing to say. And yet a lot of people in, in churches today right across the world are secretly wishing for just that. I hope nothing supernatural happens in our church today. See, they're not wanting anything to disturb them. We've got everything nicely sorted and, okay, this is the way everything it is and everything is. And Wow, if God starts doing that supernatural stuff, what, what am I going to do? That's, that's going to freak me out. When the Holy Spirit fills the church, expect the supernatural. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will fill this church. And I hope you're praying for the same thing because do you know what we're asking for when we're asking for Holy Spirit? We're asking for God. Holy Spirit isn't anything scary. Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is the reason we are here today. A church without Holy Spirit is a church without God. A church devoid of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is a church lacking the activity of God. There's nobody here who who would deny that we, we we want to see the activity of God, don't we? Yeah? I hope so. I hope you don't want to see the activity of Michael Brumpton because that's just that's just downright disappointing. We want to see the activity of God. Now, this is the work of the Holy Spirit that we're desiring to see. And that's why we should be eagerly desiring God to move in this church and in this district in a supernatural way. And God wants to do it, you know. He's just looking for a people who are willing and a people who are longing. Now, when the Holy Spirit came upon this church, they had been meeting for weeks, praying. Lord, Jesus has promised us his Holy Spirit. We've been told to stay where we are until his Spirit comes, Lord, fill us. We don't know what that looks like, but Lord, fill us. And he came. And we need to be a people who are eagerly desiring the Holy Spirit, who are eagerly desiring the presence of God in our life, who are eagerly desiring to see the activity of God outworking out into the community. The fifth thing that Pentecost reminds us of is another day. It's called the day of the Lord. Or in the Old Testament, it calls it the day of Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord our God, is a God of justice. Now, we we Australians... We generally don't understand justice too well. Um, 
There once was a time that our jails were known as the justice system or the penal system where penalties were imposed. But they're not called that anymore. They're now seen to be places of reform and so we call them correctional centres or reform schools. And the aim of a jail sentence or a fine is not to get justice for the person who has been wronged but to reform those who did the wrongdoing. Have you ever noticed that? That that's the way our criminal system works these days. And that's why there's so much hoo-ha at the moment over the two of the Bali Nine who are about to be executed in Indonesia for transporting drugs. Now, I don't know if you've noticed the language that the media have been using on the news as you watch it each night, but they've been saying things like, well, they don't need to be executed, they've been reformed. And it's like the media cannot understand why the Indonesians would continue to carry out an execution when these people are showing some evidence that they've been reformed. And there's a mismeshing of two ideologies. One is the ideology of reform and the other is the ideology of justice. Reform works on the premise that all people are basically good and we've just got to give them another chance and, and, and they're going to be good. Whereas justice works on the reality that all people are basically bad. We're corrupt. And when we do something wrong, we deserve to be punished for what we have done wrong. And it's only when someone can rescue us out of that corruption, as happens in Jesus Christ, that we can have any hope of ever being good. Now, the strange thing is, even though we Australians, we don't understand justice um, and and we've set up ourselves as, as a reforming situation, most people, when they themselves are the ones who have been wronged, cry out for what? We cry out for justice. Mum, little Freddy's taken my toy. Right, give it back. Right. Don't do that again. Smack. Okay? We're crying out for justice. People do not cry out for reform they cry out for justice. We want to see people punished for the wrong that they have done. And so we cry out for justice. And guess who's listening? God. The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is the day that God has set and it is coming when God will deal in justice. And on that day, there's only one thing that will save us, and that's the cross. And if we, if we don't understand this, and we're never going to understand the cross, we're never going to understand the crucifixion, why Jesus died for our sins. The justice of God demands that our sins must be punished. And sin is punishable by death. Reform's got nothing to do with it. I cannot make up for all the wrongdoing that I've done by becoming a better person. No matter how good I've become, justice demands retribution for all of the bad that I've already done. And so I praise God that there's a way out. And the way out is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was crucified so that those who believe in him will never be punished for their sins. And that's what the cross is all about. The vengeance of God has fallen upon Jesus and those who believe in Christ are forgiven and they themselves will never suffer God's vengeance 
That's what the cross is about. So when the day of the Lord comes, those who are in Christ are saved. That's a pretty sombre warning. When the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, there was no doubt about it. Right there and then, the world had moved into a new timeline. The last days. The last days had begun. But that also means that the very last of the last days, right? the day of the Lord, that'll be the very last day, the day of the Lord is on its way. And on the day of the Lord, those who have called on the name of the Lord will be saved. But those who have rejected the Lord will be condemned. That's the five things I've pulled out of what it means to us that the Holy Spirit came on that day. Now I just want to leave us now with two questions. Firstly, am I saved? I want you to ask yourself that question. Am I saved? Am I ready for the day of the Lord? On that day when God comes in justice, when God comes in vengeance for all of the sins that we have committed, am I ready for that day? Am I saved? Have I put my faith in Christ and so therefore been saved from judgment on that day? If not, you need to do something about that. And we're going to be talking about that more next week as we get later into the chapter, but next week might not be soon enough. Because we're living in the last days. The day of the Lord may come before next week. So am I saved? And the second question I want to leave with you is am I living between Easter and Pentecost? What do I mean by that? On Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I'm pretty sure that everybody here believes and knows that. A lot of people in churches today who believe in the resurrection have not yet made it to Pentecost. They haven't experienced Pentecost. They haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like that kid story I did before with the drill with no battery, we work hard and work hard and grind away. And it's just like we're lacking something. What's missing in my life? Why, why is this all so hard? Why? What's missing? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Now Jesus said if you ask for the Holy Spirit and keep asking for the Holy Spirit I will give you my Holy Spirit. He also said you know, this is from your Heavenly Father who loves you. Is the Father going to give you something that you don't like you know, that's not good for you? Of course not. How much more will he give the 
Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Today I would like to pray that God will fill us, that God would fill this church with His Holy Spirit. But before that, I want us to have a little time for questions and conversation. Always open it up for questions. Haven't had too many questions lately. Um, And then I'd love it if, if you would be willing for us to come together in prayer for a filling of God's Holy Spirit. So that we would be a people who overflow with joy in the Lord and a boldness to share the good news of Jesus out in the world. That God would begin to do what only God can do.